Hello and welcome back to the album years. For the first time ever, Tim, we're actually going to do this face to face like you and I normally. Indeed, yeah. Discuss, stroke, argue about the music that we're I mean, you know, it we're could get very physical. It could get, for the first time, it could get physical. Now, the interesting thing is, of course, we started this as kind of a COVID project, didn't we? So it was yeah. by necessity, it was all done via Zoom, remotely speaking. But we thought now that we can, you know, now that we can interact, we should actually try and do this face to face. So let's see. Maybe the magic won't be there. As I say, this is kind of how me and Tim usually discuss music, you know, face to face, trying to fob off, you know, <laughs> yes. mid-period Billy Joel albums onto each other, you know, in swaps and all that stuff. Not that there's anything wrong with mid-period Billy Joel. as you Not just, at all. We're just discussing off mic what a classic album he made this year because we're talking about 1977, right? This is your choice, Tim. But it's a year we've been planning to talk about for a long time, isn't it? Because it's such yeah. a kind of, you know seismic pivotal pivotal there you go. that's the as, as van morrison said a period of transition and is that that was one of van's uh, that was van's album of this year was it which ironically is one of the few i've not heard very much Me also I, so. i'm afraid i haven't so nice to see that i'm not the only one that hasn't done my research this year yeah. but so let let's let's talk about 1977 obviously for for most of us here at least in the uk 1977 is a year that I think people who were around at the time always think of as the year of punk, but also a much more successful commercially, uh, at least in uh, genre, was the genre of disco, which kind of exploded this year too, didn't it? So we've got these two kind of opposing things, punk and disco, which are kind of shaking everything up, aren't they? But you've also got, I suppose, the American MOR, Fleetwood Mac, dominated 77 to a degree as well. And obviously Queen... In Britain, had an enormous hit with News of the World. So it's, um, I mean, what's interesting for me is kind of when we were looking through this list, it's another one of those years where we kind of really need about three to ten episodes to kind of really three get into to it. ten, three to ten oh episodes. God, okay. I'm thinking, and every genre, seemingly, you know, obviously it's seen in retrospect as the era of punk to a degree, the era of disco, but almost every genre seems on fire. And I think when we did '76. I remember saying that we thought there was something a little exhausted so you could partly understand why 77 had to happen. But what's interesting is some of the artists in the older unfashionable styles are actually producing their best work in 77. And it's for different reasons. I think it's for two reasons. I think one, it's artists who are very aware of what's happening. And so they're somehow kind of connecting with the zeitgeist. And two, and it's something we like equally, it's artists who seem oblivious to what's happening and they're just lost in their own lovely little fantasy world. But I think I was looking through the list earlier, the list that we're going to go through, and it is a very, a very long list of, of albums we want to talk about for this year. There's very few albums that aren't at least affected in some way at least to my ears, very few albums that aren't affected in some way by the three things that we've kind of mentioned, which is the the revolution of punk, the revolution of disco, or as you say, I mean, I, th- I kind of think of that Fleetwood Mac rumours sound as almost like an extension of the Laurel Canyon singer-songwriter scene of the early 70s but it's become increasingly smoother increasingly more disconnected from you know reality in a way Mm. isn't it and obviously crossing over to a massive audience and disco in a way I suppose is the other side of that coin it's a very 
it's a very upwardly mobile expensive kind of lifestyle it's the it's the antithesis in a way of punk isn't it so it seems to me like there's very little that isn't affected in some way by at least one of those i think there are a few outliers and weirdly enough it's actually in the progressive field where you get them i'd say you know i can think of three albums that don't really seem to have anything of 1977 about them i'd say yes going for the war and anthony phillips geese and the ghost renaissance novella where they seem oblivious to anything that's happening and it's as if they've just kind of pursued what they were pursuing almost with a kind of blind focus on it isn't that probably just a bit of time lag in that case maybe it was the next album for them that yeah, they would have yeah, started yeah. to take on the they're just a little bit slower to kind of uh, you know acknowledge and absorb what's going on but i mean i guess we'll 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 come to those things certainly i see the influence through a lot of things i mean you look you think of albums like abba the album which was the, the big abba record this year yeah, there's yeah. definitely an influence from disco on that record well there's an influence from progressive so i think it's what's interesting with that album is it's a very expansive record and yes it does have those kind of smooth textures that you come to associate with say chic there's that kind of almost symphonic disco which i i mm. always rather liked you know but let, let's start because you know certainly for you and i i mean we we were sort of i mean i was nine in 1977 you're probably a couple of years older than me you've been 11 or 12 i've been 13 13 oh my 13. god 13 old geezer in the house alert this would have been a very important i mean this was about the time i was starting to buy music in fact i bought my first record this year which was carly simon <laughs> nobody does it better which i still think is one of the greatest i, I greatest bought that as well well, yeah. well well interestingly kind of coming on from 70 i think when we did 78 that it was a great year for singles and a great year mm. for very eclectic singles. So I would have been buying albums by this stage, but singles were probably the main thing I was going for to me, buy. it was the only thing. I mean, I yeah. started buying, I think, you know, my first singles was sort of 75. So it would have been I'm Not In Love, 10cc, Bohemian mm. Rhapsody, Queen. So just slightly before you. But yeah, during this period... There were so many different things that were so exciting. And what was quite nice, I guess, still at 13, I wasn't reading the music papers. So I was open to it all without prejudice, mm. really. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I was buying predominantly, well, I was buying only singles in 1977. I couldn't afford to, to buy albums, but I wasn't probably interested in albums at that stage anyway. I was interested in these sort of pop moments. You know, I was only, in some ways, I was only sort of, aware of punk as a phenomenon as being very much on the periphery of my you know childish perspective of, of pop music because of course it's also true to say that punk although its longer term impact is huge it wasn't particularly successful commercially was it you, you wouldn't have seen a lot of punk music in the top 10 would you not at all and i think that it took quite some time i mean you know where i was i was based in between liverpool and manchester and there wasn't necessarily you know now if we see films one of the things i can't stand is when you see these films set in 77 and everybody is either wearing a disco gown or they've got a mohawk and the fact of the matter was that if you want to know what kind of late 70s early 80s britain looked like i always think gregory's girl is one of the best examples where everyone's got reasonably long hair still very little fashion sense and rush posters on the wall and actually this was closer certainly mm. to you know to where i was in cheshire at a kind of grammar school it was mm. closer to that mm. than it was of course we had 
punk fans and new wave fans and I bought into some of that as well but again I bought into it because I was hearing things on the radio on top of the pops it was what excited me so you know I could buy the stranglers for example in 78 the squeeze or buzzcocks but I was buying them alongside Carly Simon or Elton mm. John or Yes or whatever is, it was. Was that partly because of your age? Because I think, at the, I mean, certainly in my age, when I was nine years old and starting to buy singles, I had no concept of, I didn't care, you know, what was hip, what was fashionable, what was trendy, what was unfashionable. I didn't care, you know. I think those things become more important to maybe in your mid-teens, you know, being part of a tribe. Not, I mean, you know, I'm sure you and I have both got mm. stories about you know, pretending that we didn't like some of the music that we did like or almost convincing ourselves that we didn't like it yeah. because it wasn't the right thing to be at the age of 15 or 16. It wasn't the right thing to be seen, to be listening to Bat Out of Hell well, or Incantations by Mike Oldfield, you know. Well, bizarrely for me, I remember having, because I, I still had my McCartney and Wings posters on my wall. And I did have, yeah. I had like Joy Division posters. But people were what the hell? And of course now... I quite like that combination, yeah. but at the time you do feel slightly stung by the mm. uh, by the criticism. But yeah, I, it, it was buying because you liked. It. I mean, I kind of I got into albums at that stage, and I think the first music for me, I think probably similar for both of us really, that I was really attracted to film music. So John Barry's Bond film music was probably the first music that I totally fell in love with, had the albums by, and so on. And this was kind of you know when I'm eight, nine. Um, so film music was was quite important. I didn't really have a sense of what was fashionable. It was just what you were attracted to. So I guess the first pop singles for me were always things like Sparks, This Town Ain't Big Enough for the Both of Us, I'm Not In Love, Bohemian Rhapsody, which had a cinematic quality, I suppose. Were those really the singles you bought? Though, yeah. Because... No, I, actually, this is one of the things where I can be completely mm-hmm. honest about it because I hated pop music. When I was at school, I liked hymns. I liked classical music that my grandparents played, and I loved John Barry. Because the, re- the reason I ask is there's a brilliant story, and I, and I kind of completely relate to this. There's a brilliant story in the book by Giles Smith called Lost in Music. Yes, yeah, I've read that. About how he convinced himself the first single he ever bought was Hey Jude. I think, I think it's Hey Jude by the Beatles. And even in his own mind, he's kind of convinced himself. Yeah. And then he goes up into his attic one day and he finds a box of his singles he bought when I was a kid. And he's numbered them all in order that he bought them. And he's shocked to discover that he's been kind of fooling himself as well as everyone else when he's been telling it. And actually the first thing, I forget exactly what it was, but like chicory tip or something like that. So he's almost like brainwashed himself into believing that the first single he bought was. But I know for a fact the first single I bought was... Nobody does it better. Good. Carly so, Simon. Um, but the second single I bought might have been by Donny Osmond or something. I don't know. I'm sure I made some no, terrible fashion I, faux pas at the, the age thing is, of because nine. I, I, was, I was obsessed, as I said, with you know, John Barry soundtracks and I hated pop music. So when I was at school, it was sweet. It was the Osmonds to a degree. It was Slade. And it was just very, very boorish. I mean, I was pretty much... You know, at the school, I was a little like Lord Snooty. I'd be in there with my top hat. Oh, wow. You so were a for snob me, even then. For me, I hated this. And so it was when I'd heard I'm Not In Love on Top of the Pops. And I, I think actually before that, it was Sparks, this time big enough for the both of us, that just ran through my head rampantly. But I didn't buy it. But I'm Not In Love, I did buy it. And I absolutely fell in love with it. And the only thing on top of these things I'm telling you was ABBA where I liked ABBA at the time. So I'd have bought ABBA singles. And that's the only kind of what you've called now pop. We all bought ABBA singles. But, but OK, so so 
with that in mind, yeah. What was your response to the whole kind of punk? Here's one chord. Here's another one. Here's a third one. Now go and form a band. I mean that kind of reduction to the very basic elements of making music. I mean how? I mean that was even less sophisticated than Slade and the Sweet, wasn't it? So how did you respond to that? Very badly. No, I I, I really. But you didn't said like you it. were buying Buzzcock singles, so you can't have responded. That's seventy-eight. That. that was okay. later. Um, and I think they were always more sophisticated. I think people kind of underestimate how sophisticated some of those great new wave and punk pop singles were. It's this thing, you know, I think because a music can be beautifully produced, people can be fooled into thinking it's sophisticated. And I think we both know this, that certain music we love, let's say Pink Floyd, some of it isn't particularly sophisticated or complicated at all, but it sounds beautiful, it feels beautiful. Whereas actually some of these punk pop songs were quite difficult to play, quite difficult to write. So I, I've, I've never quite bought into, you know, the complexity arguments. But I, at the time, was sort of aware of punk and a couple of friends would have been interested. But for me, it was, again, listening to music on the radio, listening to it through friends, listening to it on top of the pops. And some things spoke to me, some things didn't. So at the time and now, Sex Pistols and Clash... I didn't like in the way I didn't like Slade and Sweet. And I still don't like those early albums. I think John Lydon with Public Image became fantastic and inventive. And in fact, the first Sex Pistols album, I can see it's quite well produced and he's kind of interesting. But to me, it's like a status quo album. It just does nothing for me. And ditto The Clash. Whereas The Stranglers, when I first heard them, No More Heroes, Top of the Pops, absolutely grabbed me what a great song great arrangement so some of it got me some of it bored me to tears really what about okay so what about the damned new rose i mean that's pretty back to basics would that have appealed to you or spiral scratchy p by the buzzcocks spiral scratch did and i don't yeah. quite know why there's something kind of there's a nagging insistence in the early buzzcocks um and i became a much bigger fan of magazine but there was something in buzzcocks i liked yeah but it was damned all, didn't damned to be honest it's not that i didn't like them it's i just didn't know enough or hear enough Okay, because as you know, New Rose is now. Yeah, yeah. It's perceived to be the first ever British punk rock single. Um, if I'm if I'm right, I think they beat the Pistols by a couple of weeks putting mm. New Rose out. I love New Rose. So let let's tackle. I think one of the one of the fundamental things that we want to discuss here is the revolution, the punk revolution UK style versus the punk revolution US style. Now, I, I've had this discussion with Richard Barbieri quite often because Richard is a big fan of the so-called US uh, punk bands. And I've never been as much of a fan. I've always preferred the UK stuff. And there is a big, big difference for me. The US stuff never, and probably that's one reason why you may prefer it too, yeah. It never had that quite that sort of reductive, atavistic, back to basics thing that the UK punk had. And when I think of bands like Television and Talking Heads, I just think they're actually still really arty and pretentious. Yeah. And in a good way. And when I think of bands like Blondie and the Ramones, I just think it's bubblegum pop dressed up with some, some yeah. slightly you know, more arch uh, production. So I don't necessarily think of that music as punk. For me, punk is something that I very much associate with the UK and singles like New Rose by the Damned 
Anarchy in the UK by the Pistols, the first Wire album, which is also very clever in its in its way and very art school in a way. But it's also very, very, um, how should we say, primitive, deliberately primitive in the way it's it's, it's kind of uh, fashioned. So maybe we should talk about that, the sort of UK versus USA. I mean, you the UK versus US sort of approach mm. to to punk. What, what's your feeling about that? Well, yeah, I think there was always something sort of slightly um, grubby and back to basics about the UK approach. And, and, you know, the main... But that's punk, isn't it? To be grubby and back to basics. I mean, OK, it's quickly developed into something more sophisticated. It is, but I find it very... You know, it's interesting. We're going out with pretension here that I found the British side of it more pretentious. So The Clash's first album, which I've never liked, whereas I, I love Sandinista, I love London Calling... Um, I even think Combat Rock's got some great stuff. I think they became a brilliant and really diverse band, actually. But that first album does absolutely nothing for me. And I think there's a kind of pretension where it's actually some pretty bright, talented people really dumbing it down. Whereas at least I think the US punks were true to themselves, true to their history, true to their influences. And there was an aspirational quality that I bought into as well. So, you know, the US bands I'd have sort of discovered more late 70s, but mainly Patti Smith talking heads for me were the big things that I adored. And, and once more, it would have been because of my age, I discovered you know, I think it was Patti Smith because she was on top of the pots with Because of the Night and I bought Easter, which is a stunning album. And with Talking Heads, there was a South Bank show special on Fear of Music. But that's much later, obviously, isn't it? I a mean, of years, I, yeah. yeah I, I, we're talking about the Talking Heads first album. Here, so. I mean, I, lo- I love it, but I, I would have only heard it, say, 79, 80. Compared yeah. to, say, Wire's Pink Flag, to me, it, it's a lot of people would say... This is, I think, this is the, the the crux of the matter, really. A lot of people would side with, say, the Talking Heads uh, over the Wire. I would always, personally, I would prefer the Wire. It's a similar kind of um, situation in a way. They're kind of artists, painters, conceptualists, whatever you like, whatever, however you want to describe it. But they're taking a slightly more back to basics approach and they're filtering it that's filtering that through or they're filtering their sensibilities through that kind of musical vocabulary i love the wire album i don't particularly like the talking heads album the talking heads album to me sounds closer now to fleetwood max rumors (laughs) than it does to the first damned album or the first alternative tv album Whereas the Wire album still has this incredibly visceral kind of quality to it, like they've just gone into a basement and record. And not, I mean, that's that album is, is notorious for having like 23 songs, a bit like the Ramones album in a way, mm. but much more sophisticated than the Ramones. The Ramones album just to me just sounds like people doing rock and roll, 50s rock and roll. Yeah, I think there's rock and roll, there's surf, there's bubblegum. Uh, it's boring say. to me. I don't like those kinds of music. It's boring to me. Whereas Pink Flag, there's something about Pink Flag, Pink Flag, no no pun intended, that sounds like Pink Floyd mm. put through a, a sort of a, a punk filter. And I and I love it. And maybe it's just being English and, and finding more connection with the sensibility of British punk than I did with US punk. I've, I still to this day, I quite like Marquee Moon. I don't see how it's punk in any way. To me, what I think of as punk is encapsulated by... The Damned's New Rose, The Pistols' Anarchy in the UK, um, The Jam's first album, you know. Although the, even The Jam's first album, you can say, well, actually, it's just kind of they've taken the Who template yeah. and they've made it a bit more sort of brash and a bit more cynical. Um, so, there, you know, you can hear the precedence through, through a lot of these things. 
uh, I suppose, in that respect. I just never related to the American um, the American punk sound so much, whereas Richard feels completely the opposite. Yeah, well, I, I sort of do as well. You know, for me, the first Talking Heads album, I think, is quite underrated, and I kind of see there's also a disco sensibility to it. And what I liked about the American bands was there was a kind of a spindly, atonal quality to the guitar playing so um, Richard Hell and the Voidoids had it as well you know Blank Generation television because Richard Hell had been in television as well television to a certain extent I always saw as being a kind of punk variant on Grateful Dead I think you can hear live dead in what they do the whole the, the unison guitars I you know so I quite like the ambition of Marquee Moon and I thought they were bringing something fresh to that dual guitar approach and again, Talking Heads have that slightly atonal, slightly cross rhythm that you can see also fits in with the burgeoning New York minimalist movement, the Steve Reich, uh, Philip Glass and so on. And I guess that's partly why I kind of connect with it. Yeah, yeah. I can see that, you know, and I can also see how that that approach of, of television particularly um, influenced the next generation of you know, punk musicians, the post-punk musicians in the UK. So you get bands like Gang of Four and XTC yeah. who completely, again, I much prefer the English sensibility. Uh, maybe, again, it's just because of, you know, who I am and, and always responding more to English music than American music. I'm generalising now, but certainly this point in time. Um, I can see how that would have also perhaps been something that Wire themselves would have been listening to at the mm. time. But there's also something quintessentially English about Wire. I hear that also in a band like Ultravox, you know, yeah. John Fox, who himself was an artist. And again, you know, Patti Smith on the other side of the of the ocean was uh, a poet, you know, so there's, mm. there are parallels there, too. Um, but so what, you know, what for you would be what what music from this UK scene did you sort of respond to in a positive way or, or none of it? <clears throat> well, it's just, no, I stranglers very much so and I bought the singles at the time and you know got into buying but interesting because you've put the you haven't even put the stranglers in the punk category you've put the stranglers in and we've kind of collaborated on this list here but you I've let I've let you have this one (laughs) you've put the stranglers alongside Hawkwind Vandergraaf Generator and Pink Floyd in the sort of progressive rock punk crossover category yeah and I completely understand why you would do that but in a way, they could equally have gone alongside Ultravox and Wire and the Sex Pistols and the Jam in, in the UK punk category. Well, they were weird, but, you know, I loved those first those two albums that they did in 77. Yeah, so I think the Stranglers were quite different. I think there's a real musicality about them, and you could recognise almost all the instrumentalists, you know, Greenfield and um, Jean-Jacques Bunnell in particular. And it was a tremendous sound. And what was interesting about them is that a bit like the American bands, you can hear they're rooted in a kind of 60s psychedelia as well. That comes through. And then you can hear how that influences the next generation. And I was listening to the Stranglers' first couple of albums again recently. And you hear how much Julian Cope and Tear to Explodes took from them, which is something I hadn't kind of realised at the time. But in retrospect, you can hear that. So I just thought, you know, a fantastic combination of personalising a kind of 60s roots making it sit nicely in the 70s um and obviously influencing some of the new wave 
to come. But I think, again, with the Stranglers, they're one of those bands that very quickly evolved into something different. You know, for me, they hit a kind of creative peak on the Raven. But I love the fact that, you know, even in the early 80s with Feline, they're still redefining themselves. They seem musically curious. And I think that's one of the things you don't get in a lot of the meat and potatoes British punk really well i think also what's interesting about the stranglers is just the fact they had a keyboard player um, yeah most of these punk groups were looking down this list the clash the damned the jam the pistols they didn't have keyboard players and i think only ultravox is the only other band i can see on the list that had yeah. a keyboard player so that immediately gives you a sort of broader sort of uh musical vocabulary opportunity for more musical more sort of varied textures musically and they were a little bit older as well weren't they so they weren't like paul weller paul weller was like 19 or whatever john john johnny rotten was like 20 these guys were mid-20s or in the case of jet black the key uh, the uh, drummer was already in his sort of late 30s yeah yeah so they had grown up through so i mean i suppose this is an example of of a little bit of opportunism on their part but there is something also very punk about the attitude it is this kind of sneering um, cynicism that hadn't been in in a lot of music through the 70s. And I think that's what in a way that's the hallmark of a lot of what we've come to know of as punk music it's not only the reductive nature of the music and as you say in some cases the music is quite deceptively complicated and, mm. and the opposite of reductive um, it's actually quite clever music, but it's that kind of sneering archness that kind of appears in a lot of these bands like Wire. Um, and also that th- sort of thing is, let's just cut to the chase. Let's get through this song in a minute yeah. and 52. We don't need seven minutes to say what we want to say. We're going to say, or in the case of Wire, we're going to say in like 52 seconds, you know, yeah. or the Ramones. We're going to say it quickly to the point and probably at twice the speed that we would have done if we've been recording this in 1975. Mm. So two years later, all the tempos are up. Um, and, and that's kind of a hallmark of punk too, isn't it? The sort of brevity, the, to the point, the sneering quality, the sort of, we're just going to bash this out. Yeah. I think so. And, you know, going back to Ultravox, I think again, like Stranglers, not only to have a keyboard player, I think they came from a different tradition. You can hear the Bowie and Roxy music, art rock art pop background certainly in their debut it's very prominent and whereas i think it's ha 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 was this year 77 Mm -hmm. it's much more brutal but you can still see in a way that they're coming as much from eno as the well craft work i think i think craft work was their their big probably eno too but Mm. i can hear a lot of craft work in the second ultravox album even even some of the language about being robots and being sort of you know slightly alienated and 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 like almost like an automaton you know there's a lot of that imagery isn't there in john but there's a a kind of conceptual heft isn't there you know if you're thinking of ultravox um and probably the second album might be my least favorite i still think it's great but i think there's there's always a real sense that this is thought out it's part of a bigger picture which i kind of like about them but going on in a sense what you were saying about attitude because one album that because i think i had that section it was kind of is it a prog is it a punk where i do think there were certain artists from the prog side that had so beautifully dovetailed with punk that it's almost indistinguishable and then people like the stranglers and a few others who had dovetailed the other side and i think the pink floyd album from this year fits what you said in one respect okay very long tracks very slow tracks in that respect it's the antithesis 
one of the things that, you know, isn't that widely discussed is that two of the songs had been written before Wish You Were Here. You know, they were actually being toured before Wish You Were Here had been recorded. But there is something about Animals, perhaps more than any other album of this year, that captures what it was like to live in England in 1977, that period of gloom, depression, Mary Whitehouse, Mary Whitehouse, Mm. tension. And what they have is not only this brilliantly grimy Britain of 1977, there's a real cynicism and edge in the way in which it's sung, even Gilmore. So this material may have been written in 74, but perhaps because of the atmosphere within the band, even the guitar solos on Dogs, they have they are dripping with attitude and bile, which perfectly links it to 77, in my mind anyway. I think you're right. I think a lot of that might have been serendipity. Um, you know, just coincidence that Roger Waters was very angry, uh, increasingly angry at that time. The alienation, I think the band members felt within within the band from each other and also perhaps the fallout from the massive massive success of dark side of the moon had, had kind of taken them to taken them into an area which put them kind of on a parallel with a lot of the attitudes of punk rock and of course it's it's ironic in a way that pink floyd became in some ways the symbol partly i think because johnny rotten was known to go around with a, a t-shirt saying yeah. i hate pink floyd they became a symbolic of all that punk was a rejection of but you're right there's a lot of com certainly a lot of commonality between something like animals no more heroes by the stranglers what about i mean i would have thought for you tim you would have probably uh, i was expecting you to say that the one artist that you felt an, a lot of affinity with would have been elvis costello because he came more from a sort of sophisticated singer songwriter background so what about elvis costello i would have thought for you he would have been someone you would have related more to yeah but i, I kind of discovered him slightly later i bought the single so you know watching the detectives an amazing single but for me the breakthrough in terms of me getting the music was probably Oliver's Army Armed Forces, Armed Forces yeah. period, which I think is is a great album. And and once more, I think that, you know, he's always seen slightly as a kind of reductive artist during that period. But if you listen to Armed Forces, it's an incredibly eclectic, musically versatile album where he could be drawing from psychedelia, jazz, ABBA. There's an awful lot that he's drawing from, as well as writing these brilliantly literate pop songs. So, yeah, he was definitely an artist I felt an affinity with. Ian Jury, I mean, he's another kind of, I guess he's another another artist that kind of benefited from the sort of um, scorched earth policy of the music press, doing away with all of the sort of, you know, the progressive rock and the Laurel Canyon scene and the smooth FM pop of things like rumours. Ian Drew was another artist that kind of benefited from that because he'd he basically come up through the the London pub yeah. pub rock scene, hadn't he? But he was suddenly embraced by the punks as someone who had an affinity with that. Well, he was a real one-off and, uh, you know, again, fantastic uh, hit machine during that period, very distinctive singles and some really strong albums as well. I mean, <clears throat> what I think was interesting about that whole period is that Zappa always said, you know, that you, you know, for AR executive, you sign 10 bands, 
one succeeds. And this is why for him, the 60s and 70s was so interesting because they often didn't know what they were doing. And I think punk was a great period in the artists like Elvis Costello, Squeeze, who really were not punk in any sense. And Ian Jury, as you've just pointed out, managed to get in yeah, but both of those arts, both of those artists you just mentioned were on Stiff Records, a tiny independent label. True, true. So they didn't get the record deals. The the bands that got the record deals, obviously controversial. The Sex course. Pistols got a record deal, but then got dropped and then got another record deal and then got dropped again. Yeah. So the record companies were struggling with punk. I mean, interesting Wires album comes out on the Harvest. Yes. Label, yeah, yeah. The same label that Animals came out on on that year. So I think even that, you know, even there there's a parallel between t- between Wire and Pink Floyd. I always think of Wire very much as the Pink Floyd of of the punk scene for not only for those reasons. Um, yeah. Well, also I'll, the artwork, I think, ties in that, you know, I think that for Floyd and Wire, the visuals were almost as important as the music. You know, somebody had asked a question online whether we'd ever bought albums as a result of the covers. And of course, the answer is yes. Oh, and, yeah. you know, Wire and Floyd are two of those bands where the covers would have beguiled me as much yeah. as the music in a way. And it's it was part of an an all-enveloping experience, those artists. That's why I think Wire hit the Floyd nerve. But the, it's also true to say, and this this coming back to what I was hinting on, hinting at with the, the Costello and the Jury thing, that a lot of these bands were not getting big record deals. There were this new generation of independent labels popping mm-hmm. up as well. And so maybe this is another thing that distinguishes the UK punk scene from the US punk scene. Talking Heads was signed by Seymour Stein, I think, to yeah, Sire yeah, Records. Sire, yeah. Um, Blondie was signed to uh, I forget who it was now it was Chrysalis in the UK I remember that television were on Electra they were on these big big corporate multinational you know labels the Ramones were also on Sire whereas a lot of the UK bands couldn't get record deals and ended up being on on brand new independent labels a band like The Damned were on on um were they also on Stiff, actually? I think I think a lot of these bands are on Stiff. Records. I mean, Buzzcocks were New Hormones, weren't they? It was their own label initially. And then Buzzcocks were New EMI, Hormones, yeah. In fact, Squeeze put their first single out, I think, this year on their own label, didn't they? Uh, and then got picked up later by A&M. Yeah. So there was a lot of bands putting out records on, on a new generation of, of labels as well. There's going to be a lot more kind of exploding in 78 independent labels because a lot of these bands the the big record labels were wary of so i think you're right there is a sense that when the music industry senses that something is happening Hmm. the first thing they do is they go out and sign 10 bands and they just see what sticks they don't necessarily understand it but they know if the kids are digging it that they might be lucky. They might get lucky with one of these ten bands they sign. And there is a, there is a degree of that too, obviously. Well, I think as well the gatekeepers. You know, if you're talking about the music papers that there was overnight, especially with Enemy and to a degree Sounds, that overnight they took on board punk to the detriment of almost any everything else. But an interesting thing is going back to Floyd because Animals was released I think in January '77, and that was still getting front page of Enemy. And it was still being played in its entirety on the John Peel show. So there's still that element that things are about to change significantly. It's interesting. If you look at, um, so John Peel, for those of you who don't know, John Peel's a very, very famous UK DJ that was always at the forefront of every change in music 
for, for decades. I mean, he's legendary in that sense. So John Peel had this thing called the Festive 50. Every Christmas he would get his listeners to vote for their favourite songs. And it's interesting, picking up on what you were saying to him, if you look at the one from around 1977, mm. 1978, and I have looked, it's a mixture of things like Stairway to Heaven. Yeah alongside anarchy in the uk um and there's a real transition but if you go for if you just fast forward even two years yeah all of the shine on your crazy diamonds have disappeared and it's all from then on joy division the smiths cocteau twins the fall and all of the old school classic rock artists don't get a look in but there is as you say there's this 12 18th month period where they mm. kind of coexist before all the kids realise they shouldn't, they should not be listening. I mean, yeah. putting this in quotes now, they should not be listening to the the Zeppelins. But, and but the it also happens to the because, as I said, you know, Gregory's Girl looks like Britain did. I think when I was a kid, when I was at school, and to an extent, Marky Smith. You know, if I'm thinking that even the kids who were the punks in my school were more Marky Smith than John Lydon. You know, in terms of sort of image and so on. So it takes some time for these things to filter through. You know, if you look back at yearbooks um, of 79, it's not what you think. You know, if we're now watching this documentary on Channel 4 of I Love 1979 and everybody is a certain way, they're not and they never were. Is there a sense that the true punk, leading on from what you're saying there, is there a sense that the true punk would have been someone that didn't care about what people thought about what they listened to. So Marky Smith, in that sense, is more of a true punk because he would have been very honest about the fact that he was was as influenced by Can as he was by, I don't know... What Velvet Underground or whatever, or the Stooges. Is there a sense that the, you know, the kind of the weekend punks, the ones who kind of adopted the, oh, we don't listen to any of that prog rock or, or, you know, 60s shit. That's all rubbish. It's year zero. And of course, the music belies that anyway, doesn't it? You listen to it and you can, as you say, you can hear. I mean, I listen to a song like Tank by The Stranglers off Black and White, which is the, the following yeah. year i think this is this is obviously so influenced by bike by pink floyd you mm. know even down to the you know the sort of t- writing a song about a, a method of transportation well I, i've always been wary of year zero things really you know of course it's very exciting as an artist to reinvent yourself and also to find a new scene that's absolutely inspiring and i don't doubt that some people found that but you know generally speaking they all came from somewhere they all had certain root tastes and some of them it was very obvious you know you find there are quite a number and we know these musicians from punk and new wave bands where actually they really were you know either kind of singer songwriter jazz fusion or prog and that was their true love even during their success well because you look at when they grew up and you think how could you not yeah how could you not be aware of those things i mean uh, if if you were pete shelley from buzzcocks or johnny rotten from the sex pistols or you know colin newman from wire you're suddenly emerging as a professional musician in 1977 and you're making music, nothing comes from a vacuum. Mm. So what did you grow up with? You grew up with Slade, Led Zeppelin, <laughs> Pink Floyd, Carpenters, you name it. This yeah, is yeah. what you grew up with. And okay, I think there was a lot of revisionism around that time. That Oh, yeah, we only listened to Bowie and Roxy. Bullshit. Yeah. 
bullshit. You were also listening to Nectar, you know. So <laughs> well, is it? Well, is it? Because I think isn't there a T-shirt with Ian, Ian Curtis, Curtis wearing, wearing his a Nectar, Nectar shirt? Well, I, I, yeah. I asked Stephen Morris about this, and he said, yeah, Ian loved all that stuff, you know. But I think in some senses we we, we can't blame the musicians because you you mentioned the music press. Yeah. A lot of the music press kind of impose. I, I remember speaking to Nick Beggs about this. You know, Nick yeah. Beggs who came out with the Kajagoo and the Goo the in goo. A, in '84. Nick had grown up as a bass player being mm. inspired by Return to Forever, Stanley Clark, yeah. Brand X, Jaco Pistorius. He wasn't allowed. He was he was actually told by the press department at EMI, don't mention that stuff. Yeah. And this is this is the, the, the mid eighties, this is another era completely. But oh, the God, same yeah, is no, true, I, isn't it? Because I, you know, God, when I was a teenager and I kind of started in the early eighties. When I was doing interviews initially on kind of radio and uh, sorry Manchester and Liverpool radio stations, BBC stations and independent, you couldn't mention certain things. And of course, the DJs themselves had much more eclectic tastes than mm. they were willing to allow their show. You told to. me a story, Tim. You told me a story about when you were when you were a teenager with all your buddies and punk came along yeah. that you went out lining British telephone boxes with copies of Eggs, the Civil Service. <laughs> it's pretty close to the to the truth. Basically, it's a terrible, terrible thing. It's an awful waste. But year a, zero. It's a year zero in war in the Wazza. Um, it wasn't quite that though. Right. It was. Um, it was more that we used to be able to buy albums for like five and ten pence at a Manchester shop called Yanks. And we just used to go through so many albums. You know, we'd go to Manchester at weekend, come back with bags, each of us with maybe, you know, 10 to 20 albums each. And we'd listen to them. And it would be anything from funk to prog to reggae to classical to jazz. And it was a way of finding out what you liked, what you didn't like. And the things we didn't like we ended up disposing of. And unfortunately, we sort of ridiculous ways of disposing them. So, for example, we had 30 albums hanging off the Stockton Heath Swing Bridge. What sort we, of albums would these have been, though? Nectar would have certainly been amongst them, actually, because Nectar were always really cheap in Yanks. I, I love this image of, of some unsuspecting, you know, person going into a, a red telephone box to make yeah. a phone call and finding a copy of eggs the civil this surface. was the other thing that yes we would <laughs> next we to would the telephone leave albums in telephone boxes um and there were a couple of supermarket car parks yeah. where we would completely cover certain spaces <laughs> i love this i i love this story because of course now you would probably admit to loving some of those records, right? And But this is what I'm saying, that I think when you're at that kind of age, your impressionistic age, you kind of convince yourself. I mean, I did it. You conv I convinced myself that some of this music, which I genuinely... I'd grown up listening to ABBA and Carpenter's Records and Donna Summer Records, and I, I probably did go through a phase in the 80s where I convinced myself that I couldn't and shouldn't be listening to this stuff is this kind of window in the middle of your life where i think this you know being older now we couldn't care less could we yeah i mean i I'm, think i kept i mean i think is i think i kept the things that meant something to me i always kept so again if we're talking about say pink floyd they didn't go those albums you know kate bush the things that i absolutely love you know the first things i but um, kate bush was always eternally you know a hipster territory she's never been someone that was persona non grata has she really but certainly the floyds would have been and things like nectar would have been completely beyond the pale 
Sure. Yeah. Completely beyond the pale. Um, but some of these were, you know, it, it was a genuine sense of, for us, it was discovery. It's like, what do you like? What do you dislike? So it's an album I was talking about the other week of an album that I remember getting for something like 10p in the cut-up bins. And I still love it. And I loved it then. It was kind of unfashionable then is now. Stevie Wonder's Secret Life of Plants. What an amazingly creative, intriguing record. So if I believed in something, that stuck. (laughs) 